Welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and making historical things or crafts. And we normally like to start by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? Um, I haven't done a lot food-wise, mostly because I've been on my own and so... I have to use twice as much energy just like house maintaining. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't really count as crafting, but it's the creative thing I've been doing. I have been working on an RPG. Oh wow. I did I did not know about this at all. What how how's it going? It's good. We we have a playtest coming up. Um it has a magic system based in the four humours because I am a problem. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm excited. Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing how this works. How about you? Uh, also not that much because I'm on placement and um, it's hard. <laughs> but um, yeah, just, just general background, crafting, knitting, um, and making a scarf from some of my hand spun. Um, got, got back into spinning a little bit, which is highly relevant to the topic of our episode and may have influenced it. Um, yeah, no, no sort of major projects at the moment, but I'm um, thinking about something historical because my reenactment group is doing a uh open house christmas fair at um a tudor building in in the village and they said we can have a table to sell things if we want to to you know raise money for our insurance next year or or whatever um so it's in three weeks and i'm trying to think of like what kind of things that I could make in three weeks that people might want to spend a couple quid on. Um, but they they don't have to be medieval things, but because we're a medieval reenactment group, it probably helps if they have a medievalish sort of theme. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so far I've, I've got a couple of ideas. I was thinking maybe like spiced wine mix in, in little bags, or maybe like, some kind of lip balm, lip tint thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's got to be something that doesn't take a lot of time <laughs> or energy. So if you've got any ideas, send them in. <laughs> Vaguely medieval small gifts. I do like the idea of like little sachets of mulling spices because I have encountered it in basically a tea bag before now. Mm. Like we're hoping to do make some spiced um, what's the word? We're hoping to make some spiced mead this year, and oh, we yeah. got a thing of mulling spices in basically a big tea bag. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking if I could maybe track down some medieval recipes for various spiced drinks then maybe i can make some up i will have a look in my copy of the form of curie for you yes please but what is today's episode on okay so today um i think we've mentioned this one before i thought i would talk a little bit about the history of the spinning wheel this is your I needed to talk about something I'm obsessed with episode, isn't it? This is my jam. That this <laughs> is my goats. This is my goats episode. <laughs> I mean, now that we've both done these, like what are we what are we where are we gonna go from here? We need a new like golden episode. I mean we have we have suggestions. We could do other people's golden episodes. That's true. Um, so yeah, the spinning wheel. Um, highly relevant. Uh, I've, I've been spinning 
quite a lot recently because it's extremely relaxing. Um, and I, I think what gets me about it is it's one of the craft that is a basic unit of creation. Like you can start right from the very beginning of, of making something and it's such a simple device, but it can create so much. And that's partly what I love about it, I think. That's really beautiful, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I'm thinking about my first tattoo at the moment, and I, I really want it to be um, an archaeological illustration style um, of a, a spindle whirl, oh, sort of top-down view. Yeah. Because spindle whirls were your dissertation, weren't they? My dissertation was on spindle whirls, yeah. Um, I... <laughs> seems to be in archaeology everyone has like a thing just like a really niche object that is their thing um and, and mine is spindle whirls but there will be no whirls in this episode there are no whirls in the world of wheels <laughs> wheels are whirls are mutually exclusive <laughs> mm. Indeed. So um, if, you, if you're thinking, what is she talking about? Um, a whirl is on a, on a hand spindle, a drop spindle, uh, which is the oldest form of, of spinning thread. There is a shaft, so just a stick, and then a weight that is joined onto it, and that is the whirl, or whirl, and that's the the weighted bit that sort of keeps it spinning to get the twist in. Um, so a wheel doesn't need one of those. Um, because it's a wheel and it spins. <laughs> yeah, because you're providing the twist by turning the wheel either with your hands or your feet. Yes, best um, of physics. <laughs> So you don't need that weight on it to keep it spinning. Um, yeah. So um, I guess I could have started with an episode about the hand spindle. Um, but I think I've mentioned it a couple of times before. Um, and it's um, it, it also comes up in this because just because the spinning wheel was invented doesn't mean people stopped using the hand spindle, um, as I will talk about a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, spinning or twisting or creating thread, um, as I said, is one of the oldest crafts in history. Um, and which, what, what were you in our episode? Uh, a few episodes ago. Oh, the rope um, episode. Fact, yes, the rope episode. You talked about the oldest piece of um, cordage, which yes. was it 50,000 years? Um, I do not remember offhand, but it was ridiculously old. It yeah, was... 50,000 years old, pre-human. Extremely, extremely old. Um, so whether that's spinning with just your hands or using a spindle or a wheel spinning is one of the oldest crafts um but the origin of the spinning wheel is is a little bit obscure so it's sort of blamed perhaps by a few places um and there's evidence from various different uh, cultures of early spinning wheels um mainly pictorial evidence because the early ones are made of wood and that doesn't tend to survive very well. Um, so there is um, there's a mention of a very early spinning wheels being used in the Indus Valley civilization. So sort of the Bronze Age period. 
in South Asia. But the um, the the justification that is put forward for that is that is is based on the fabric and not from any finds of actually parts of a wheel. So it's actually from impressions in clay of fabric from that period. And this um, this person is arguing that because this fabric is of such uniform thread, they must have been using spinning wheels. Um, however, we do know that hand spindles are able to produce very fine weave fabrics made of very uniform thread. Um, and, and we know that because we have um, fragments of, of fabric and we know that certain garments were made by societies that did not use spinning wheels. Like, for example, um, look, the ancient Greek fabrics which are known for these incredibly high thread counts and and we know that those were all made on hand spindles so um yeah i, I don't think that one is very convincing mm-hmm. um <laughs> there is an argument shade mm. mm-hmm. shade i'm in praise of the hand spindle there is a lot you can do with it um and there are incredibly Skilled people were were working with the hand spindle and still are to make incredible textiles. Um, but the spinning wheel, um, there is one that shows up in China, and we have a picture of it being used in that is dated to ten ninety. Um, oh no, sorry. The, the picture is dated to around 1270, um, and it is mentioned in text around 1090. So it's, it's proposed that perhaps that is where it originated. And I'm going to show you the picture, which is attributed to the artist Wang Zhizheng. And that is of the spinner sitting in front of an upright spinning wheel. I wasn't um, expecting it to look so much like, like a flywheel. Yeah. <laughs> so y- there are still spinning wheels kind of of that design today. With the wheel kind of on on the front. And I'll put these pictures up on the Twitter as well. Um it's also uh, posited that it might have emerged in the Islamic Middle East. Um, so there's an early painting again, 1237, which shows a spinner at the wheel. And this wheel looks very similar to depictions of spinning wheels used in India around a similar time period. So it it does seem to emerge within a a couple of centuries. Um, The one place it's clear that it didn't originate is Europe. (laughs) Everyone else in the 13th century is just like, we've got to get one of these spinning wheels. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Um, So... I, I don't think it's unlikely that this the spinning wheel or a device for spinning thread in larger quantities um, wouldn't have originated in multiple places at the same time. I've forgotten what it's called when that happens, when the same thing is invented, but it's unconnected. No, when it's animals, it's parallel evolution. I don't know if it's called okay. something different in anthropology. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not sure, but but that's the one. Um, <laughs> but given that there was trade between these countries, you know, it could also it's it's a very useful device. So it it wouldn't be surprising to me if a lot of people just thought, hey, how can we make this but more and faster? 
It showed up somewhere or somewheres in Asia. <laughs> is what um, is what we have. Is, am I as, hearing that right? As as with a lot of technological innovations, yes. <laughs> um, We've narrowed and, it down to a continent. <laughs> yes, and it had spread to Europe um, through the Middle East by the 13th century. Although it wasn't adopted by everyone across Europe. Um, and in fact, it was unadopted, um, it wasn't necessarily adopted um, right up until the 20th century by everyone. Um, because there are still there are, there are early 20th century photographs of um, people from various rural areas or particular minority groups who are still using the hand spindle. Um, so okay, so like probably for tradition reasons rather than just like I don't want this. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not necessarily that people I, might not. Have so had... the way you phrased it was like people just being like, "No, that's the devil's work." <laughs> Yeah, I don't think specifically. <laughs> or not. Um, and, and it also was the case that people might, for traditional reasons, still have used a hand spindle for certain tasks, making certain things, but mm -hmm. used a wheel for other things. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't catch on everywhere um, all at once. And there were, well, there are um, a few different kinds of wheel. So one of the oldest types of wheel is originating in India. It's called the Chaka. And that is, is very similar to the medieval Great Wheel, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, but is essentially is a wheel that you turn with one hand and that wheel drives the spindle and you're drawing out the material that you're spinning with the other hand. Okay, I think I've um, seen these at like reenactments and things. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a similar mechanism. Um, but the Chaka wheel does look a little different. Okay, so it's it's that sort of spoked without an outer part design again. Yeah, so there's the spokes of the wheel and then there's a thread in between those that the drive band um, goes around and, the, and that drives the spindle on the other end. So it's a very simple but very beautiful mechanism mm. and it can be made out of pretty much anything that you can find. Um, and the Chaka actually, while being one of the oldest types of wheels, um, also has a much more recent political symbolism as well. Um, so as you, as we have talked about on the podcast, um, India was well known for having um, a absolutely bustling textile industry um, that was significantly um, destroyed by the British, essentially, um, with cotton being manufactured in mechanised mills in Britain and then being sold back to the Indian population essentially destroying the, the native textile industry. Um, so the Chaka wheel and spinning was a central part of the Indian independence movement in the early 20th century. Um, Gandhi was very into, into that, wasn't he? He was making all of your fabric at home. Yes. Um, and the reason for that was, um, as he said, not because they were like against mechanization or industrialization um, or using machines, but because they didn't have access to those machines. The machines were essentially owned by the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And so the act of spinning your own thread to make your own cloth 
was an act of political resistance. Like you were literally seizing the means of production or creating the means of production, as it were, um, and and rebuilding that industry. Very cool. Um, yeah. Uh, and in fact, the earlier versions of the Indian flag, the wheel on it was a spinning wheel. Um, oh. and that's, that's how symbolic it was of kind of economic power, really. Um, and Gandhi also popularized a version of the Chaka, which was like a, a portable compacted spinning wheel that was essentially inside a suitcase. Amazing. So it's the wheel, but Travel it's... Travel spinning wheel. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of turned on its side and it's all in this box and you can just open the box, unfold it and start spinning. That's wild. I love it. It's, it's fantastic. And you can 3D print these today. Um, Yes. Yes. <laughs> so continuing the whole like DIY theme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so these are quite popular as well um, still. And uh, in fact, this it was is such a political symbol, just the, the act of hand spinning, that the Indian flag um, by law must be made of hand-spun and hand-woven cloth. That's very cool. Which I find pretty metal, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think the flags are only made in, like, one particular place. It has to be hand-spun. Yeah, so the Chaka is still very relevant today. Um, And it's ideal for spinning a lot of cotton, short staple fibre. Um, whereas the great wheel or the walking wheel, which is very symbolic of medieval Europe, is a very similar construction, but it is ideal for long draw spinning longer fibres like wool. And so the that is the one that you were talking about earlier. That wouldn't look out of place in a medieval castle. And let me just find a picture of that. Okay, no, this is giving me like the London Eye. I mean, and I, I don't think we need a picture of that because if you just picture like generic medieval spinning wheel. Um, yeah, well, yeah, but you never know because because of Disney. <laughs> no, I just we don't we don't it's... need one while we're recording. Okay, yes, because because these pictures only I am seeing. That's that is true. That is true. But I just have feelings about this um, because in Sleeping Beauty they showed a spinning wheel that is not medieval. It is in fact a Victorian flax wheel. Don't worry, and... I am very aware of this fact. <laughs> Things are hotting up in the spinning wheel fandom. Which is mostly <laughs> me and Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I felt the need to clarify what a medieval spinning wheel actually looks like. Um, but yes, when you put it that way, um, it is probably unnecessary for me to do that on this casual podcast. um anyway yeah so the great wheel and when i say great i mean absolutely massive because these could be like almost the size of your your house like ceiling um and it's also known as the walking wheel because you would be turning it with your hand and then while you were drawing the wool off the spindle you would be walking backwards as you were drawing out the thread and then you would change your angle and you would walk 
back towards the spindle to wind it on. And so you you would get a lot of steps in that way. And if you had someone else turning the wheel for you, then you could go even further mm -hmm. um, until you would wind them back on. So this is actually the real Sleeping Beauty wheel because famously in the story, uh, Sleeping Beauty pricks her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel, according to the most widespread version. And a more modern spinning wheel um, does not actually have a spindle, but a great wheel does have a spindle. And so that's the one that I, I suppose you could potentially prick your finger on. Traditionally, they're, they're, from what I've seen, they're not really that sharp, um, I don't think. But theoretically, that's the one that has a spindle on. Although, in the original, um, or one of the original versions of Sleeping Beauty, um, which is the Italian story Sun, Moon and Talia from uh, a 1634 book of stories, it's actually not a wheel at all. Isn't um, no, she pricks her finger or she gets a she's spinning flax and she gets a splinter of the flax stuck underneath her nail and oh. she falls down oh in... that's that's worse i mean yeah <laughs> that's that makes me just you know go a bit ah um that is viscerally uncomfortable. Just stuff <laughs> stuck under your nail. I know. You can ah. you can feel that one. Um and and then later on the splinter comes out and then she wakes up again. I will say this story is not for the faint-hearted. It does contain some things that are very questionable in this day and age. I mean um, a lot of earlier versions of fairy tales. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that is true. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the um, one of the original versions is is a splinter of flax. And when you think about you know things like tetanus, um, mm. you kind of see how that might translate to that earlier version of the story. Um, but yeah, I I digress into folklore for a little bit. But the act of spinning is actually shows up in quite a lot of folklore, spinning and textile production, and that is one of them. Uh, so yeah, the Great Wheel. Um, and the Great Wheel also, again, continued being used um, in lots of parts of Europe long after it had been theoretically superseded by more efficient um, versions of the spinning wheel. So all these wheels I've talked about so far are hand turned, so you're, you can't use both hands to spin because one hand is turning the wheel. So the thread that you're making has to be all drawn by one hand. And if you get sort of a, a slub or an, an uneven part, you have to stop and, and sort of go back and even that out. The next step in the evolution of the spinning wheel. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I have actually spun on one of these great wheels. Um, oh, yes. Is this with the um, reenactment? Yes. So one of the members of my reenactment group um, owns one and Amazing. I got to have a go this summer and I will say that trying to, even though I am used to spinning trying to do it one-handed while turning the wheel is really different to get used to like it's it's quite difficult um, and it's certainly the preparation of the fiber makes a lot of difference um, so it being a woolen preparation where the fibres are not aligned in the same direction. They're kind of rolled up into a tube. Um, that helps a lot. That's a lot easier to, to draw out. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's definitely something to get used to. But it feels so like it just feels so medieval. <laughs> it's very cool, and it looks quite spectacular as well. Um, although people were trying to talk to me while I was trying to to figure it out, and I was just like, I I cannot do this. I cannot focus on two things at once. <laughs> well, my hands are doing two things at once. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So the next kind of development is the invention of the flyer and the the flyer and bobbin system. So this happens kind of around the 16th century. The flyer comes into use, and in fact, Leonardo da Vinci made a design for a flyer. Um, but it th that one never came to fruition um so there isn't really a single inventor of the flyer um but it comes into use around the 16th century and what the flyer is is a piece on the wheel that winds your spun thread onto a bobbin for you so yeah, you don't have to convenient yes <laughs> so that makes it go faster because you don't have to stop and wind it on. Um, so that goes faster on a wheel than it does on a hand spindle, um, because on the hand spindle, you have to stop completely and wind it on. On the um, hand-turned wheel, you still have to go slower because you're, you're sort of changing your angle and then you're turning the wheel to put it on. Um, so that means that you're stopping drawing out the thread. But with a bobbin and flyer system, you don't have to stop. You can just spin and spin and spin, and all that thread will automatically get wound onto this bobbin. And then you can just remove the bobbin and put on a new one when you're done. That does sound a lot more convenient because I imagine it's easier to get into a rhythm if you don't have to keep stopping to wind it. Um, yeah, pretty much. And it, yeah, so it doesn't break up the flow. Um, and you can just keep going. And then it's sort of when you want to ply. So when you want to uh, spin your two threads back the other way to create that typical yarn structure, um, you can just take two bobbins and go straight from there. Um, and it, it doesn't tangle or anything. You can just you can just go. Um, so yeah, revolutionized the spinning wheel world. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Although... spinning and revolution. <laughs> oh yes, I get it. <laughs> um, yeah. Although again. Um, this being something that is really part of the fabric of people's lives, as it were. Terrible. <laughs> we do love the puns on this podcast. Um, the great wheel, or the hand-turned wheel, continued to be used um, in, in many places in the world. Um, and um, it is argued that um, in Europe particularly, it was considered a better wheel for spinning wool, which has those long sticky fibres, and it's very easy to draw that out quickly. Um, and, and you can get a really long, long draw on the hand-turned wheel uh, because you can walk backwards. You're not stuck sitting in a chair while you're spinning. Um, whereas the bobbin and flyer wheel um, is absolutely perfect for spinning flax. Um, so the flax wheel or the Saxony wheel is a very iconic um, style of spinning wheel and it, it often includes a distaff, which is the thing that holds your fibre. So it's like a stick that you wrap your fibre around. Um, and that's most often used in the preparation of flax because flax is a bast fibre. That means it is um, the entire length 
of the plant. So it's a very long fibre um, and it's it comes from the fibres that are inside the stem of the plant. Um, and so in order to spin it, um, people would like wrap it around this stick so that you can, you can just keep, you don't have to hold it, you can keep spinning from that. Um, yeah, so flax wheels often have a distaff on them, um, although distaffs were also used for spinning wool, you can use a distaff with a hand spindle as well. Um, but I mean, the um, ancient, ancient Greece used them w just with a drop spindle, didn't they? Yes. Um, yeah, so did uh, pre-spinning wheel Europe, um, and you can find discaffs from lots of different cultures around the world. And some of them are adorable. They have like little animals carved on them or you know, little painted patterns. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I think distaffs are very cool. Um, and, and some of them are on wheels. <laughs> so the flax wheel type, um, because they were also used for spinning wool and sometimes other fibres, um, but that became one of the more popular kinds of spinning wheel. Um, and you could see these in many people's homes. Um, people often made their living as spinsters, which is a woman who makes their living by spinning. Um, and often that is because they were unmarried and needed to earn a living. So that's, that's where you get spinster. Um, fun, fun bit of etymology. That is a fun bit of etymology, you're right. <laughs> so it, it's actually kind of a, um, not, I don't, I don't think it's a very insulting term at all because it's like, yeah, I am an independent business person, thank you. <laughs> a strong um, independent woman. Yeah, not that they would be earning very much money because spinning is everywhere and in every part of history a chronically underpaid job. So, yeah, not a very prosperous independent businesswoman, but <laughs> at least hopefully making some money. Enough to feed herself. Um, well, hopefully, or at least supplement <laughs> the family income. Um, okay, so when you get to the pre-industrial revolution era, um, you have cloth being made, manufactured from threads spun by a lot of different home workers with their spinning wheels at home. And that means that the quality is very variable. You haven't trained all these people together to produce um, materials to one standard. You're just getting, you know, what every person makes. And so this wasn't great if you wanted to produce a consistent product or, or expand. And so in 1771, you get the invention of the spinning frame. And that is um, part of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the mechanization of the fabric production process. Um, and that essentially eclipses the spinning wheel. The golden age of the spinning wheel is over. Um, in terms of commercial production. But that doesn't mean that everyone stops spinning their own thread necessarily. Um, a lot of people are still spinning for home production um, or they are keeping sheep and then they're spinning their own um, materials. Um, you know, not everyone has the money to send or the, the capacity to send all of their stuff to a mill to be spun. So they're doing it at home. Um, so people are, are still using the spinning wheel and in fact, to this day, are still using the spinning wheel. Um, it appears in 
uh, a lot of folklore and a lot of um, music and and literature actually. Um, so there is a very beautiful um, Irish ballad uh, written in the 19th century called The Spinning Wheel and um, it's about you know this young lady who's she's sitting and, and spinning and she her her lover knocks at the window and she climbs out of the window <laughs> to go and just have a nice moonlight walk with her boyfriend and the spinning wheel is winding down meanwhile back in the room um and it's it's like written in a, a three four time so it's like the rhythm of the spinning wheel which is quite cool um cool. yeah and the final image is of the spinning wheel spinning slower and slower and slower um which yeah so i find that one quite fun um yeah and then of course um it is now um transitioned from something that was you know a primary means of production a means of earning a living um to now a hobby for many people um and you now have e-spinners electric spinning wheels where yes <laughs> um where you, you don't even have the treadle. Um, I just realised I haven't even talked about the treadle. Um, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that the method of driving the wheel, um, once you get away from the hand-turned wheels, is the treadle where you use your feet to drive the wheel. Um, and again, that leaves you both hands free to spin. Um, sorry, I'm a bit mixed up today. Um, yeah, so with a, an e-spinner, you don't even need a treadle. And which which is great um, if you perhaps don't have leg function and you can still spin by yeah. using an e-spinning wheel, um, which you can just put on the desk. Uh, and of course, they're a lot more portable as well. Um, but of course, many people still like using the traditional spinning wheel because the rhythm of treadling is is very relaxing uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And uh, there we go. So that, that is the a, a few sort of short bits of the history of the spinning wheel. That was cool. There's, there's a lot of developments. I've, <laughs> I've learned some new words. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, also some spinning wheel anatomy there. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, sorry, I, I apologise, that was a little bit of a mix-up. Um, the, the thread of my story, as you might say, was a little bit mixed up there. Um, it's been a long week and it's only Tuesday. <laughs> so, the local ladder is mm -hmm. something that I have actually recently tried, thanks to snack boxes. Um, although I had the dry version. Um, is natto. Okay. What is that? So natto is soybeans, uh, especially small ones, which are soaked in water, steamed, and then mixed with a specific bacterium, uh, sometimes known as grass bacillus. It's uh, bacillus subtilis, which is very pleasing to say. <laughs> it is. And then fermented in a solution of this bacterium for 24 hours and then aged for about a week. Okay. Which en ends up with this kind of sticky sliminess on the beans. Um, like I say, I had the dry version, which is basically that, but dried out, which ships better. Um, it's very savoury tasting, I think, and it's often served with rice, with uh, mustard, soy sauce, taro sauce, uh, bonito. I've I've seen put on them, mm -hmm. which is apparently kind of the Japanese marmite. It's kind of a love it or hate it thing. 
Um, although there was a survey in 2009 that 70% of people liked it. It's encouraging. But the, the main reason I wanted to talk about this is just because it's one of those local ladders that has a legend, a legendary origin, although this actually has two. Which Exciting. Are, which are virtually the same, apart from the dates and the historical figure. Okay. So either around 600 or between sort of like late 11th century, mm-hmm. either Prince Shotoku, most well known for popularizing Buddhism in Japan, or Minamoto no Yoshie, who was a samurai. One of these two people, in one of these two time periods, um, was out out on campaign doing doing military things as one does, and wrapped boiled soybeans in straw bags for their horse, and because there wasn't a lot of food. Their soldiers ended up eating it anyway and decided it was delicious. Uh, that sort of makes sense. I just... The story itself is perfectly reasonable and you get a lot of stories about local foods or just foods in general that are just kind of, yeah, it just kind of happened and now we eat it. <laughs> but the fact that it's two different people Four five hundred years apart, that are both credited with this exact occurrence. I think ah. is really fascinating. Yeah. Which which one was the real story? Assuming either was because it also is a food in other places, including ah. um, in Neolithic China. Um, and Neolithic Japan, actually, so probably neither of these stories is true. <laughs> um, we have fermented soybeans. Um, in China, it's called um, tochi, which is specifically fermented black soybeans, which it's a different fermenting method and a different amount of salt. Um, so Dochi uses normally black soybeans, but can use yellow ones. Natto only yellow. And there's, yeah, there's basically uh, the sort of predominant theory among archaeologists in the area is that it was probably imported to Japan from China. So yeah. Neither of these legendary stories is likely, but I still enjoy that it's credited to two different people. A good story, anyway, and that is a good one. But yeah, like it's it shows up in popular culture sometimes, just because it's it's a relatively like iconic thing. It's like this is. A Japanese snack. Um, although, again, it does show up in a lot of different places. It shows up in... Um, honestly, most of East and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. But there's... Um, I mean, the way that I found out about it was there's a manga. Uh, Magu-chan, God of Destruction. I think that's the title, it's something like that, where said god of destruction gets really obsessed with eating natto. We all get a craving sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, like, there's not a lot to say, I just find it interesting that this is a food. <laughs> There's yeah. deliberately fermented in a specific bacterium soybeans. 
That is, is very is, specific. Which is um, apparently both a snack and a breakfast food. Ah, okay. I have not heard of this before. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this. I just I wanted to introduce you to the concept. I kind of want to try it now. Yeah, like, it's not for me, mm-hmm. but I can... I can see why people like it, if that makes sense. Okay. I do like Marmite, so... It doesn't taste like Marmite. (laughs) (laughs) Very much does not taste like Marmite. Does does liking Marmite mean you also like everything, every other food that has a controversial taste? Someone should do a study. (laughs) But in the meantime... If you want to support us and help Hazel obtain Natto, um, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread. You can also find us on Twitter at bread and thread, where we have pictures of the things that we talk about on the podcast, teasers of upcoming episodes, um, and we also tweet about domestic history. Uh, you can find that same stuff on Tumblr. And if you have an episode suggestion, a local artist suggestion, you just want to say hi, um, you want to show us a picture of a cool spinning wheel. Please can, show us your spinning wheels. You can Send message us on Twitter or on Tumblr or email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Mine is a 1970s Ashford traditional, by the way. It's, it's quite basic in the world of spinning wheels, but it, it does spin well. I do not have one. I live in a terrace. Eastbinner. One day. <laughs> what I really want is a loom. Yes. Because uh, that is like family history. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but before we get distracted, thank you for listening. Oh, yeah, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>